Today we are starting a new sermon series after the last year and a half of exploring the Gospel of Mark. We're finally finished with Mark, and uh, for the next few months, we're going to be going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so today's scripture reading is a little bit short. It's two verses. Um, I could have memorized this, but I'm not going to test my memory. And uh, so give ear to the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you all heard of the term imposter syndrome? According to Psychology Today, imposter syndrome is the belief that you are undeserving of your achievements and the esteem of those around you. You feel that you aren't as competent as others might think of you and that it's only a matter of time before people will discover the truth about you. And so those who live with imposter syndrome live with a persistent fear that soon enough people are going to discover that you're a fraud. Can you relate? Perhaps, like me, you've anointed yourself as a math expert, and so when your child says, Dad, I need some help with my math, you kind of confidently saunter into their room, and you look at their homework, and it looks like gibberish to you, and you're fearful that your child might ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. Or perhaps you were hired at a company that you never thought in your wildest imagination that they would actually accept you, and yet they hired you, and that first month of work, you realize that you are a small fish in a big pond, and that your coworkers are highly competent and intelligent, and so you live with that persistent fear that soon enough your colleagues will discover that you are not what they thought you'd be. Pastor and author Gordon McDonald once said that more than half of middle-aged men harbor at least one secret about their personal lives that would bring catastrophic consequences if that secret were ever to get out. Secrets like acts of vengeance, dishonesty, sexual promiscuity. Now, I don't know why Gordon MacDonald only said half of men I think this would also apply to women as well. If that is true, then it means that at least half of us here in this room harbor secrets that we are fearful would get out because it would mean catastrophic consequences to our lives. And so perhaps some of you this morning 
suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome being at church. You're worried that someone might discover who you are or what you've done and start questioning, what are you doing here at church? Perhaps you've joined a small group because the pastor told you that it's a good idea to find community when you're dealing with problems. And so when it comes time to sharing your prayer requests, you realize that none of the other members seem to have problems as deep as yours and you begin to wonder, do I belong? Well, if that is you, then you're really gonna enjoy Ephesians. Because Ephesians was written for people who feel like they're on the outskirts of the church. It's written for those who feel like second-class Christians as Paul ministers to these imposter-like Christians who feel like an imposter and says to them, you do belong. You are a part of the church. You are the beloved. Now, in these first two verses for this introductory sermon, there are three parts. First, uh, it begins with the addresser of the letter. Part two is the addressee, the recipients. And then part three is the greeting. And so let's begin with part one. If there's someone who understands imposter syndrome, it's the addresser of this letter. Ephesians opens with the following words. Verse one reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so Paul begins by identifying himself as an apostle. Now, I want you to know that that title, apostle, is a very weighty, significant title. It's different and distinct from a pastor or a minister. No, it's on a, another level. In the history of the church, there have been thousands of pastors and ministers, and yet when it comes to apostles, there are a much greater uh, relative few. When you read the Bible, you'll realize that the, apostle, uh, the office of apostle is very exclusive. It's not a designation you can give yourself or anyone else. You can't wake up one morning and say, you know, I think I'll become an apostle. Apostle Jeff, I like the ring of that. No, it doesn't work that way. You see, to become an apostle, two qualifications had to be met. First, an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You had to have seen Jesus in his resurrection glory. Two, you had to be commissioned by Jesus to serve in this capacity. The word apostle literally means to be sent, and in this case, to be sent by Christ. This is why Paul's conversion story is so significant. In his conversion story, while he's on the road to Damascus, two things are found. First, Paul sees the resurrected Lord, 
and receives a commission from Jesus where Jesus says, go, you are a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And so you see, both qualifications are met in this encounter. And what does it mean to be an apostle? Well, an apostle was an authorized representative, spokesman of Jesus a delegate or official ambassador, if you will. What this means is that the words found in this letter don't just come from Paul, they come from Jesus himself. They were to be received as words coming directly from Christ. And so this letter to the Ephesians is not some personal communication between friends. This is not a text message. This is definitely not a meme or a gif that Paul sends to the Ephesians. No, this is an official correspondence that comes from their king, Jesus Christ. Since Paul is an apostle, his letter had the seal of Jesus on it. And so the Ephesians can't read this letter and say, I don't know if I agree with this, Paul. No, they read it as coming from God himself. And so given the seriousness of being an apostle, I believe that Paul at times felt a little insecure. His insecurities are revealed in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 through 9. It's worth looking at it. Here, Paul talks about how Jesus, after the resurrection, appeared to different people. Starting with verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul feels, in a way, a bit inferior to all the other apostles. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. He's referencing the time before he came to saving faith, where he was an ardent enemy of the church, arresting Christians, sending them to prison so that they might be executed for their blasphemy. We even read that Paul was holding the cloaks of those who killed the church's first martyr, Stephen. You can imagine how great was the guilt that Paul carried in murdering these Christians. On the flip side, you can imagine how difficult it must have been for the early Christians to forgive Paul receive Paul as a brother, let alone submit to Paul as an apostle. Not easy. I don't think it's coincidence that in the book of Acts, Paul's conversion story is told three times. It's told in Acts 9, 22, and chapter 26. 
He has to tell his story over and over again because wherever he goes, if he goes to a new church or a new city, I'm pretty sure those people were saying, Paul, we heard some things about you, but we're not going to believe you're an apostle until you tell us yourself. Wouldn't be surprised if there was a a measure of suspicion towards Paul's office. And to compound this suspicion, Paul right now writes his letter to the Ephesians while in prison. For four years, Paul was held in, a Roman, in Roman custody from 59 to 62 AD. And during these years, he went back and forth between the courts and prison as he defended himself against these trumped-up charges. And so you can imagine the whispers. Are you sure Paul is an apostle? Because if he is an apostle of God, why would God allow him to be imprisoned? Why would God allow him to be in chains? And yet, despite all of these doubts and insecurities, Paul knew that he was an apostle. His conviction is underscored by the all-important phrase found in verse 1, by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. This is Paul's way of silencing his, uh, his doubters. He's saying, I am an apostle, but please know it's not because I deserve to be an apostle. It's not because of my qualifications. It's not because of, of my performance. It's solely because of the will of God. He is the one who chose me to serve in this capacity. And so listen to me, not for my sake, but for God's sake. If you have a problem with me, ultimately you have a problem with the Lord. You see, my apostleship is ultimately an expression of God's grace. He chose me while I was a seething, bloodthirsty enemy of the church. I am what I am simply because of Jesus. And so Paul's letters are marked by clarity and conviction. He knew he was called by God. He knew he was called to be an apostle. And this calling led to a great degree of confidence and conviction and it proceeded to produce a great measure of perseverance that no matter what he faced, no matter what circumstances, hopefully that will go off, um, uh, no matter what circumstances or troubles he faces, he knew that God was going to be with him and use him. This relationship between calling and perseverance is important. I think to help us understand how these two are related, let's look at the analogy of the calling of mother or father. I think in this life, there are few callings that are as intense as that of a mother or a father. Parenting is hard. 
Raising a child is hard. And yet, I have yet to meet someone who said, Jeff, my baby wakes me up every night. I haven't gotten a good night's rest for over a year. I can't take this anymore. I don't think I'm going to be a parent. I have yet to meet a mother or a father who said, Jeff, my child is really sick. We have to go to the hospital over and over again. We have to get our child treated. It's super expensive. The bills are piling up. I've had enough. This parenting business is not for me. No. Our calling to be a mother or father is so strong that we tell our child, I don't care how difficult it is to love you, care for you, provide for you, protect you. I will be your mom or dad through thick and thin. That's how deep our calling and conviction is. It enables us to persevere through the most difficult challenges. And as intense as that calling is, Paul felt the same call to be an apostle. No matter how difficult or laborious or taxing it is, I am an apostle no matter what. Even if I'm in prison and chained up to these walls, that is not going to defeat me. It's not going to diffuse me. I can still minister to the church. Just give me a pen. And so these obstacles don't get him down. He's constantly thinking, okay, God, I know you've called me. How can I serve you even still? And so that's Paul. Moving on to the second part, the addressee, the recipients, he writes, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Ephesus was an important port city on the western coast of Asia. Today, it's located near the western shores of Turkey. Ephesus was built around the 10th century BC and became part of the Roman Empire in 129, uh, 10th century BC, and became a part of the Roman Empire in 129 BC. At one point, it has housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world the Temple of Artemis, which was discovered in 1863. Many kings and generals fought over Ephesus in its history. Some include Xerxes, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Cleopatra. Ephesus was largely hostile to Christianity. If you walk into the city ruins today, Remnants of a huge statue dedicated to the Roman Emperor Trajan can still be seen. And this statue was designed to do more than just tell the citizens who their emperor was, but who their god was. Not only that, but when you visit the ancient docks today, there remains a sign carved in stone that directed sailors to the nearest brothel. 
Ancient accounts depict Ephesus as a city mired in materialism, sensuality, and idolatry. The culture was a blend of polytheism and paganism merged with the cult of Rome. It was a hedonistic culture where the desires of the flesh were freely indulged and those in power had free reign over those who were weak. You can imagine then the shock of the Ephesians when they're reading Paul's letter and he begins with, to the saints at Ephesus. Saints? Doesn't he mean citizens? Or perhaps Christians? He can't be talking about us, because saints mean holy ones. How are we holy? I mean, imagine if I introduced you to someone and said, here is my friend so-and-so. He is a saint. He is holy. You'd probably cringe at that introduction. Don't call me holy. You start feeling like an imposter then. Same is true for the Ephesians. And yet Paul calls the Ephesians saints. And just when they thought, maybe Paul's talking about the leaders of our church. He certainly can't be talking about me. Paul adds to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That phrase, faithful in Christ Jesus, actually I don't think is the best translation. Uh, the word translated as faithful could also be translated as having faith in Christ Jesus. I agree with my seminary professor, Dr. Ball, who translated as having faith in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is to the saints in Ephesus who have faith in Christ Jesus. And last time I checked, someone who has faith in Christ Jesus is an ordinary member of the church. Every believer has faith in Christ Jesus. And so Paul isn't talking about the, the spiritual navy seals of the church. No, he's talking about every believer from the, the grizzled veteran to the newly minted believer. You are holy ones. Now, why does Paul call the Ephesians holy? Clearly, he doesn't mean by their moral, ethical standing. Later on in the letter, Paul addresses their immorality. So what does he mean by holy? I think what's helpful is when we look at how the word holy is used in the Old Testament. When you look at the Old Testament, especially the temple, the tabernacle, or the furnishings of the temple, we're told that it's holy. Now, for a temple to be holy, for a chair or a curtain to be holy, it obviously can't mean it's ethical or moral purity because furniture doesn't have a morality. It's an object. It's a thing. But when God calls it holy, he's not talking about its character. Rather, he's talking about its function, its purpose, 
The temple is holy because it is created for me. Not any domestic usage. No, that belongs to me. This furniture is holy because it's used for my glory. And so when Paul calls the Ephesians holy, what he's telling them is, if you are a believer in Jesus, your purpose is to live for God's glory. Prior to coming to faith, you lived for yourself for your glory, for your own pleasure, for your own happiness. Now that you are in Christ, you are mine. You become a vessel, an instrument of my glory and pleasure. And so, for Christians, the question is never, who do we serve? That question has already been answered. We serve God. We serve King Jesus. The question is rather, how will we serve God? In what capacity will we serve? And so you see what Paul is doing here? After stating his calling as an apostle, Paul is now helping the Ephesians see, but don't forget, you too have a calling. Don't think that only apostles do the work of God's kingdom and you guys just passively watch and cheer me on. No, just as I am called to serve God as an apostle, you are called to serve God through your various vocations. The primary callings God has given me personally is to serve God by being a godly husband, father, pastor, son, neighbor, friend. If you are a student, God has called you to serve him by the way you study. The same applies if you're a teacher, a nurse, a lawyer, engineer, or homemaker. We do not separate our faith from our work. Our work is a form of worship where we worship God through our work. We must not make the mistake of thinking that only those who want to serve God go into ministry. But me, I'm not that serious about God, and so I'm going to do something else. No, the Bible makes clear that a chef can bring just as much glory to God as a pastor. One's creating an edible meal. The other one's creating a a spiritual meal. A barista can bring just as much glory to God as a missionary. One serves coffee to the customers. Another shares the gospel. If you believe in Jesus, you are holy, You are earmarked by God for his service. And Paul wants the Ephesians to know that. Part three, after identifying the addresser and the addressee, he moves on to his greeting. And his greeting, too, surprises the Ephesians. 
He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is surprising because the typical Greek letter opened with the word karen, which means greetings. But instead of karen, Paul uses a similar sounding word, charis, which means grace. And here you could say is the main purpose of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I write this letter because I want you to experience God's grace and God's peace. I want you to experience God's grace and God's peace. Dear friends, are you longing for peace this morning? Are you feeling restless? One thing is for sure, if you don't know your purpose, you won't experience peace. If you're not living out your purpose, you won't experience his peace. God has shown us that our ultimate purpose in life is to live for his glory. We have secondary goals and objections, uh, objectives, but our primary goal, our ultimate aim in life is, Lord, I want to live for you. The problem is we forget that primary purpose and we elevate secondary callings above our primary one. And that gets us into problems. It's like buttoning a shirt. Getting the first button right is the most important button. If you misalign and don't get the first button right, what's gonna happen at the very end? you're going to realize that your shirt is altered. A lot of us right now are experiencing dissonance at the workplace, dissonance in our emotional health, our mental health, our relational health. We're feeling something off. And so what do we do? We make the mistake of thinking, well, I just need to focus more on my kids. I need to focus more on my physical health. I need to focus more on my marriage. And so even though the button's off, we're trying as, we, as hard as we can to align the button with the right hole. But you can't. Why? Because the first button is off. The only way to get everything right is if you unbutton everything and start all over. God desires us to experience his grace and his peace. He wants our lives to flourish. But for that to happen, we must live our purpose and live out our design. And so this morning, God reminds us, you are saints. 
You are set apart for me. Live for me. Begin your day asking God, how do you want me to serve you today? Start your days with that question and it will radically change. Lord, how do you want me to serve you today? What can I do to put a smile on your face? How can I live for you? If we haven't centered our lives and aimed it at God's glory, God's inviting us to do so now. Or perhaps he's inviting us to recenter our lives on him again. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for reminding us of the importance of calling. How important it is for us to understand our purpose and our design. And how you have created man to live for you. And how you sent your son Jesus to redeem us and bring us back to you. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would stir our hearts and that you would recenter us, re-aim us, magnetize the needles of our hearts so that it points towards you. We pray, O oh Lord, that in uh, living for you, uh, we might then experience your peace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.